welcome. This is the What If I Told You podcast, a show that has recently acquired a DeLorean, and no, we will not share it. Yep, we're just bragging. Yeah, we're not really into sharing, so. Yeah, whoever said sharing is caring clearly did never have anything cool enough to share. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, that's really... (laughs) We're horrible people. Since... The TikTok is no longer because TikTok customer support clearly cannot comprehend what we're trying to say to them. The back and forth (laughs) with TikTok has been fucking just so frustrating. They keep saying, go to your account. I'm like, excuse me, sir. I cannot. (laughs) (laughs) It does not exist. One simply cannot log into TikTok right now, and that's why you're hearing from me. (laughs) So, uh, what you should do, instead of trying to find us on TikTok, is go over to your Apple Pods app and give us a little five-star rating, and if you feel like it, write us a little review. Mm -hmm. We would love it. And, of course... Our merch link is at the top of this episode description in our little show note area. Get some of that shit as well. Yep. You can also find that link in our uh, Instagram bio. Yep. So go check out our merch. It's pretty cool. Um, We will be adding some themed merch, special edition stuff in the coming weeks as well. So, it's going to be, there's going to be some really cool shit. So. Yeah. Because the best time of the year is coming. That's right. We are on the cusp of witching hour. Yeah. And also email us, what if I told you podcast at gmail.com, and we will, of course, email you back. That's right. We went to Post Coffee this morning, and it was amazing. Mm -hmm. I had a lemon poppy seed scone. Emily had a glazed donut. And they were both amazing. Yeah. So, thank you, Post. If anyone from Post is listening to this, um, send us some free t-shirts. Yeah. The tie-dye t-shirt that you currently have, we need to. So thank you. Thank you. We'll make whatever size you have available work for us. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have a chip's basement. So. Chip, we're going to need you to come into our office and have a talk about this. Yeah. We will be sitting right here waiting whenever you're ready. Yeah. And the longer you make us wait, the angrier we're going to be. We don't have time for your silly games, Chipsy. Mm-hmm. Um, today, we are going to be talking about one of the most notorious murderers in UK history. And we don't even know who he is. That's right. It's Jack the Ripper. You knew it was coming. Yeah. Hence the title <laughs> of this episode. Um, Funny, though, I didn't know until, obviously, getting prepared for this, that this was also called the Whitechapel Murders. Oh, I didn't know that either. Yeah. Hmm. Because it happened 
<laughs> in Whitechapel. <laughs> oh well. So very on the nose. <laughs> but All I've right. never I've never like I you know, you hear Jack the Ripper just as a title, but I've never looked into the particulars until we decided to do it. I bet there are some sick metal songs about Jack the Ripper. Yeah. And an entire band clearly based around him. Whitechapel. Well, yeah. I never put any thought into maybe why they picked the name Whitechapel. It's just their name. And then I'm, you know, just reading along here and I was like, these are called the Whitechapel murders. It's, it's all making sense now. (laughs) It's clicking. (laughs) Okay, Phil Bozeman. I see what you did there. So... If you're not following us on Instagram, go ahead and do that because when I add today's episode picture to our story, the song choice will be elite. Hell yeah. Yeah. We are going to throw out a listener discretion though because, I mean, it's awful. It's so bad. Yeah. (laughs) So. I mean, it's going to, this is going to be worse than... The Samuel Little coverage. Yeah. It's, like, really terrible. Also, I didn't, uh, I did look for some podcast episodes, and the podcast Morbid has, I think, a five-parter on Jack the Ripper. Good lord. Um, which I did listen to, because of the main five victims, they did, like, an episode dedicated to each. Wow. So... They're out there doing the most, for sure. And the episodes were very good, so go listen to Morbid. Everybody's probably already listening to Morbid, though, so everybody listening to this episode, like, yeah, we know. Yeah. We we already listened to those. Thank you. Morbid (laughs) is one of Ashley's favorite podcasts, so. Nice. I like it. I mean, it's very, like, very similar to what we do. Yeah. It is. But. I like us better. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Alright, so. Jack the Ripper is the moniker given to an unidentified serial killer who operated in the poorest districts around the east end of London in the area of Whitechapel in 1888. He targeted female sex workers. Shocker. (laughs) Yeah, I. Why is that the choice that so many serial killers make? I don't know. Um, Who worked and lived in the slums of this area. He had a few distinct signatures also, and we will go over those in a little bit. He was also referred to as the Whitechapel murderer and leather apron. Oh. Yeah, I don't like that one. (laughs) It makes me think of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm, Yeah. Leather apron, leather face, same thing. Yeah. Rumors that the murders were connected intensified in September and October of 1888, and numerous letters were received by media outlets and Scotland Yard from individuals purporting to be the murderer. Because, you know, that's a cool thing to lie about. I feel like... I need to hear from, like, a psychiatrist or some scientist out here investigating what goes on in an individual's brain that would make them want 
people to think that they were doing these things. Yeah. What, like, like the uh, uh, Asia degree case, the people who are, like, trying to say that they were the ones who did it. Why do you want to be, why do you want to be that person? Well, it's just weird. It doesn't, there's a weird psychology happening in those individuals' brains, and I need to know what it is. So, the name, Jack the Ripper, originated in a letter written by an individual claiming to be the murderer that was disseminated in the media. The letter is widely believed to have been a hoax and may have been written by journalists in an attempt to heighten interest in the story and increase their newspaper's circulation. Which, we're going to go through, there's, I think, like, five letters that were written to the news media, and um, one, this source says that the From Hell letter was the one that was signed Jack the Ripper and where they got the name, but a later source claims there's a different letter that was received first, and it's where they got Jack the Ripper from, so, I don't know. Good Lord. But... Some of the letters, I think, authorities think are authentic, and some of them are not authentic. Well, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, that makes yeah. the most sense, so we're going to talk about those later. The From Hell letter received by George Lusk of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee came with half of a preserved human kidney. Um, so that's weird. Um, the public came increasingly to believe in a single serial killer known as Jack the Ripper, mainly because of both of the extraordinarily brutal nature of the murders and the media coverage of the crimes. Cool. Okay. So now we're going to talk about the Whitechapel murders. The first five we're going to talk about are referred to as the canonical five, which essentially is these five murders occurred between August 31st and November 9th of 1888 and are often considered the most likely to have been linked together. Uh, they were obviously never solved. And the legends surrounding the crimes are at this point it's been so long that now what we're talking about here is a history lesson basically yeah a little bit of folklore and pseudo history so it's really hard to know what exactly the facts are at this point yeah because i mean what has it been like 150 years yeah. almost that's a <clears throat> long time yeah, that is a long time. <laughs> so, these five are the canonical five. And the first is Mary Ann Nichols. Mary's body was found around 3.40 a.m. on Friday, August 31st, 1888 in Bucks Row, which is now Durward Street, I think. That's how you say that. Mm. Durward? Durward. I'm going to say Durward, right? Yeah. It looks like All that. Right. Uh, in Whitechapel. 
Nichols had last been seen alive approximately one hour before the discovery of her body, and she was seen by a woman named Emily Holland, with whom she actually shared a bed at a lodging house in Thrall Street, Spitalfields, and walked in the direction of Whitechapel Road. So that was the last time she was seen. So these lodging houses in, like, the poor parts of London, essentially you paid for your bed by the day. And most of the people who, most of the women who lived in these lodging houses were sex workers, which was the case with Mary and Nichols. So she was essentially going out from the lodging house to try to make the money for her bed. Otherwise she would have to sleep like out on the street. Right. So... That's what she was out here doing, trying to make, I think what I saw in the research was that the bed was four pence a night, which is, I think, four, four cents. Damn. Uh, I think, I'm trying to remember, I looked up the money when I was in (laughs) England, and I have since forgotten. Yeah, I think... Pence are kind of like pennies. Okay. So, like, so many pence make up a pound. As in, so many pennies make up a dollar. I think is the way it works. I could Google it, but I just don't want to. So, when her body was found, her throat had been severed by two deep cuts, one of which completely severed all the tissue down to the vertebrae. Here we go, people. Turn this now if you do not want to hear it because it's bad. Her vagina had been stabbed twice and the lower part of her abdomen was partly ripped open by a deep, jagged wound causing her bowels to protrude. Oh, God. Several other incisions and inflicted to both sides of her abdomen had also been caused by the same knife and all of these wounds had been inflicted in a downward thrusting manner. Yuck. (sighs) It's going to stay this way (laughs) through all the victims. So next up we have Annie Chapman. Um, Her body was discovered one week later, on September 8th in 1888, at approximately 6 a.m. near the steps to the doorway of the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street in Spitalfields. And as in the case of Marianne Nichols, her throat was also severed by two deep cuts. Um, her abdomen had been cut open entirely with a section of the flesh from her stomach being placed on her left shoulder and another section of skin and flesh plus her small intestines had been removed and placed above her right shoulder. Her autopsy revealed that her uterus and sections of her bladder and vagina had been removed as well. This is like straight up 
I, there's no word, really. Yeah. The weird thing is, when you just hear about Jack the Ripper or whatever, no one ever says this shit. Yeah, when you hear Jack the Ripper, you just think, like, oh, old serial killer in a black cloak that, like, went around stabbing people. Yeah. Ooh. Uh, nah, a little context would help, guys. Yeah. You know? Because I started reading it, and I was like, uh, <laughs> uh, hold on a second. Yeah, this is rough. It's, yeah, it, it really is. So, at the inquest into Chapman's murder, Elizabeth Long described having seen Chapman standing outside. What just happened? I just spilled my coffee. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Not a lot of it, though. But just, just enough. <clears throat> at the inquest into Chapman's murder, Elizabeth Long described having seen Chapman standing outside 29 Hanbury Street at about 5.30 a.m. in the company of a dark-haired man wearing a brown deer soccer hat and dark overcoat and a kind of had a shabby, genteel appearance. And according to this eyewitness, the man had asked Chapman the question, Will you? To which Chapman had replied, yes. So this seems kind of like the exchange, exchange the negotiation for like soliciting some sex. Right. So Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes were killed on the same day and their murders are going to have been called the double event. So both were killed in the early morning hours of Sunday, September 30th, 1888. I keep having to think very specifically about 1888 because my brain wants to say 1988. <laughs> um, so Elizabeth Stride's body was found first at around 1 a.m. in Dutfield's yard off Burner Street, which is now Henrique's Street. In Whitechapel. The cause of death was a single clear cut incision that was about six inches across her neck, which severed her left carotid artery and her trachea before ending right beneath her right jaw. There was an absence of any other mutilations to her body, which has led to some uncertainty as to whether Elizabeth Stride's murder was actually connected to the other canonical five. Um, but some speculate that it's possible that he was interrupted while attacking her. Several witnesses later informed police that they had seen Elizabeth in the company of a man in and around Burner Street on the evening of September 29th and in the early early morning hours of September 30th, but each gave differing descriptions. Some said that the man was fair and others said that he was dark. Cool. Perfect. Some said he was shabbily dressed and others said he was well-dressed. Great. So, essentially, none of those witnesses met anything. Yeah. So, we can just forget everything they said. Cool. 
Uh, okay, so Catherine et al.'s body was found in the corner of Meter, Squ- Meter Square in London and was, a, the, was found about 45 minutes after Elizabeth Stride's body was found. A section of Catherine's bloodied apron was also found at the entrance to a tenement in Golston Street, Whitechapel, at 2.55 a.m., so not in the area of her body. It had been, like, taken to this, like, lodging house and left. Hmm. Weird. Um, Catherine's throat had been severed from ear to ear, and her abdomen had been ripped open by a long, deep, jagged wound. Her intestines had been placed over her right shoulder, with a section of intestine being completely detached and placed between her body and her left arm. The left kidney and the major part of et al.'s uterus had been removed, left kidney, Yep. And her face had been disfigured with her nose severed, her cheek slashed, and cuts measuring a quarter of an inch and half an inch, respectively, incised through each of her eyelids. A triangular incision, the point of which pointed towards her eye, had also been carved on each of her cheeks and a section of the oracle and lobe of her right ear was later later recovered from her clothing. The police surgeon who conducted the postmortem on Catherine's body stated his opinion these mutilations would have taken at least five minutes to complete, which is a lot of time if you're out here in the street cutting a person. Mm. So, Catherine et al. clearly fits the rest of the victims. Right. Elizabeth Stride is really the one who may or may not. Yeah. Uh, Next is Mary Jane Kelly. Her body was found lying on the bed in the single room where she lived at 13 Miller's Court off Dorset Street, Spitalfields. At 10.45 p.m. on November 9th, on November 9th, 1888. (laughs) Her body was extensively mutilated and disemboweled. Her face had been hacked beyond all recognition, with her throat severed down to the spine and the abdomen almost emptied of its organs. That's horrifying to say, isn't it? Yeah. Um, her uterus, kidneys, here we go with the, our fucking Google updates. It's Gmail. Yeah. Cool. Her uterus, kidneys, and one breast had been placed beneath her head, and other viscera from her body placed beside her foot, and about the bed and sections of her abdomen and thighs... We're on a bedside table. Can you imagine being the the person who finds this no. scene to alert authorities? No. You're just walking up there to check on your, your tenant. Boom. Just organs on the table. Mm. Uh, 
her heart was also missing from the crime scene. Multiple ashes found within the fireplace at 13 Miller's Court suggested Kelly's murderer had burned several combustible items to illuminate the single room as he mutilated her body. Because clearly when you do this stuff, you need to see. Sure. Uh, A recent fire had been severe enough to melt the solder between a kettle and its spout, which had fallen into the grate of the fireplace. So... That was, again, disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that was the canonical five. <laughs> um, other than the obvious elements of each crime that are the same, they were all also perpetrated at night on or close to a weekend and either at the end of of a month or a week or so after. So they're being, they're all occurring kind of in the same time frame. Yeah. Obviously they're happening at night because cover of darkness makes it easier to go unseen. And uh, it is weird that all of them happen like towards a weekend and also like right around the end of the month. Or, like, yeah. within a week of the end and beginning of a month. Yeah. Must have been a schedule. You know, yeah. I mean, it could have been a, a scenario where this guy doesn't actually live in Whitechapel, but has a family member in Whitechapel who yeah. he has to go and stay with every month or deliver money to every month. Could be. You know, we constantly think of rent as being due in the beginning of every month. So it makes sense. That, so it makes sense. You know. Is that how rent worked in 1888? Who knows? I don't know. But that's weird. That is a... I think that's probably one of the main reasons why they think all of all five of these women are linked. Yeah. Aside from the mutilations. Obviously, that's very specific. Right. Um, obviously, the mutilations became more severe as the murders progressed, which is also kind of typical. We usually see escalation in most serial killers. Um, although, starting off with Marianne Nichols and, like, you know, your first one being that bad is kind of rare, so I would venture a guess, because he probably killed people before that, too. Yes, because he started off pretty strong there. Yeah. Yeah. Out of the gate, just mutilation. That's typically not what you see. No. So, I would venture a guess is to say this guy's killed before. Um, let's see, where was I? Um, yeah, this is just going over what we already talked about, all the victims. Ugh. So, yeah, I feel like these five are linked for sure. The Elizabeth Stride murder is questionable, but it seems... I I feel like I buy the theory that he was interrupted while killing her. Yeah. Because her throat was cut, like all the others. Which is, I mean, clearly the first thing he would be doing to these women. Exactly. So... 
it does make sense that he would have gotten interrupted and then need to go and find another victim. Yeah. Which is how he ended up killing Catherine Eddowes. Right. So, I think that that tracks. Um, so, yeah. Let's see. Historically, the idea that the five were committed by the same perp is derived from contemporary documents that link them together and exclude others. So there are more Whitechapel murders. Right. And investigators pretty much just pull out the five. They're like, these are the ones. Um, in, 19, in 1894... <laughs> oh, I'm going to keep doing that. In 1894, Sir Melville McNaughton, who was the assistant chief constable of the Metro Police Service and head of the Criminal Investigation Department, wrote a report that stated, quote, the Whitechapel murderer had five victims and five victims only. So authorities are like, it's just the five. Um, similarly, the canonical five victims were linked together in a letter written by police surgeon Thomas Bond to Robert Anderson, who was the head of the London CID, on November 10th, 1988. So this is the day after... Mary Jane Kelly right. was murdered. Um, some researchers have posited that some of the murders were undoubtedly the work of a single killer, but an unknown larger number of killers acting independently were responsible for the other crimes, which we're going to talk more. We're going to talk about a few specific Whitechapel murders that were not the canonical five that could potentially be linked, but honestly, they just don't seem like it to me. Um, authors Stuart P. Evans and Donald Rumlow argue that the canonical five is actually a ripper myth and that three cases, and that would be Nichols, Chapman, and Eddowes can definitely be linked to the same perp, but that less certainty exists as to whether Stride and Kelly were also murdered by the same individual. I feel like the last one, Mary Jane Kelly, is very clearly the same person as the first three. Yeah. Obviously, we've already talked about Elizabeth Stride, but I don't know why he, why these authors would say that Kelly was not. Yeah, I don't know. Because that was, I mean, very similar to all the others. The placing of the body parts very strategically around the body, that's very yeah unique. Yeah. So, okay. Um, conversely, others suppose that there are six murders that should be canonical rather than just five. And one of those is the name of a, I think her name was Martha Tabram. Um, and she was actually killed before Marianne Nichols. Hmm. But... She, I don't think, I didn't put her murder in here because it's not typically talked about. Yeah. Um, and all the way to Mary Jane Kelly. Uh, Dr. Percy Clark, who was the assistant to the examining pathologist George Baxter Phillips, linked only three of the murders and thought that the others were perpetrated by, quote, weak-minded individuals induced to emulate the crime. So he's he's thinking that the, the three, Marion Nichols, 
Catherine Eddowes and Annie Chapman were all the same murder, and that the other two, Stride and Kelly, were copycats. Could be. Could be. I feel like, I don't know. I don't know how fast, like, news of the details of the crimes would travel. Right. That would be totally... Especially back then. That's what I mean. It's like, not like they're pulling up their Facebook, you know? Right, because, like, now, copycat could always be on the table. Right. But in 1888, I feel like it'd be less likely. Yeah. I don't know. But, you know, there's that. So now we're going to talk about an additional four victims that occurred after the five that some say are also the work of the Ripper. And, of course, some say they're not. But these are... The other four. Um, first is Rose Millet. Yeah. She was 26 when her body was found in Clark's Yard High Street on December 20th, 1888. She had been strangled and there didn't appear to be a struggle, according to police. Um, at first, it was thought that Rose had either accidentally hung herself, hanged herself while drunk, with her collar or that she had committed suicide. However, there were faint markings on one side of her throat and it looked to be the result of a cord. And this of course suggested strangulation. And at the legal inquest into Rose's death, the jury found that her death was indeed a murder. I mean, yeah. Okay. Um, Next is Alice McKenzie. She was murdered shortly after midnight on July 17th, 1889 in Castle Alley, Whitechapel. She had suffered two stab wounds to her neck and her left carotid carotid artery had been severed. And there were several minor bruises and cuts on her body. And, uh, she also bore a seven-inch-long superficial wound extending from her left breast to her navel. That's a fucking... That is a bitch of a gash. Yeah. One of the examining pathologists, Thomas Bond, believed this to be a ripper murder, though his colleague, George Baxter Phillips, who had examined the bodies of three previous victims, disagreed with him. I mean, I can kind of yeah. see both sides, but... Yeah, this one could go either way. That Rose uh, Millet, no. No. Opinions among writers are also divided between those who suspect McKenzie's murder copied the, the M.O. of Jack the Ripper to deflect suspicion from himself. And, uh, I mean... I, I, I don't know. I feel like linking murders is kind of a hard game to play anyways. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, I think in the case of the first five, super clear. Yeah. Like, I feel like those were wildly obvious. Right. Very specific. But then you get, like, Alice McKenzie, and it's there are some things, like, stabbing her in the neck, severing the carotid cutting the abdomen but there's no 
He didn't cut open her abdomen. None of her organs were removed. That was very specific in the first five. Right. Except for Elizabeth's stride, but we've already talked about that. There's an unidentified victim who is referred to as the Pension Street Torso. I hope I'm never referred to as a torso after my death. Same. Um, this victim was found beneath a rail railway arch in Pension Street Whitechapel on September 10th, 1889. The body was decomposing and uh, it was headless and legless, Obviously. hence the torso name. Yeah. And the torso was from a body of a woman thought to be between ages 30 and 40. There was bruising around the back, hip, and arms. Wait, did it have both of its arms? Yes. Her arms? (laughs) This indicated the decedent had been extensively beaten shortly before, before her death. And the victim's abdomen was also extensively mutilated, although her genitals had not been wounded. She appeared to have been killed approximately one day prior to the discovery of her torso, and the dismembered sections of the body are believed to have been transported to the railway arch hidden under an old chemise. 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 What's it's, that? It's like an undershirt. Oh. Um, <laughs> how do you hide a head and legs under a shirt? The head for sure will fit, but you're not getting two legs under that thing. No. And also, why I don't never understood why it said are believed to have been. Did you not find the head? Yeah, it's was it there or not? How do you if you didn't find it, how do you know it was hidden under a railway arch under a chemise? And if you did find it, why are you saying it is believed to have been? It the either, 1800s, man. Either it was or it was not. <laughs> uh, next is Francis Coles. Um, the body of Francis was found at 2.15 a.m. on February 13, 1891 by P.C. Ernest Thompson. Her body was beneath a railway arch at Swallow Gardens in Whitechapel. Her throat had been deeply cut, but her body was not mutilated leading some to believe Thompson had disturbed her assailant. And uh, Coles was still alive, although she did die before medical help could arrive. Oof. A 53-year-old stoker, James Thomas Sadler, had earlier been seen driving with Coles, and the two were known to have argued approximately three hours. Was that supposed to be something else? No, I was just looking to see what Stoker was. Oh. I think it's like in like a coal. Yeah. That makes sense. He's stoking. Yeah. Yeah. And the two are known to have argued approximately three hours before her death. Sadler was arrested by the police and charged with her murder, and he was briefly thought to be the Ripper, but was later discharged from court for lack of evidence on March 3rd, 1891. Ooh, weird. Just a few weeks after it happened yeah yeah so these are all weird the there is an argument here for alice mckenzie the pension street 
torso and Francis Coles, to be honest. Yeah. Um, the fact that the torso and Francis Coles were both discovered under a railway arch is pretty significant, I think. Right. So, there's that. Especially the last two. The torso and Francis Coles could, I, you know, it's tough. Yeah. Because also, at the point that these two were killed, the Jack the Ripper story was, had been published in all major news media. So everybody knew about it at this time as well. Right. So this is where you could clearly see a copycat. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. That's weird. Okay. So those are all the potential victims. And now we're going to talk about the investigation, which uh, investigations back in the 1800s, <laughs> they were weird. Um, so first we have the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. So these are not even police. Oof. <laughs> In September of 1888, a group of volunteer citizens in London's East End formed the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, and they patrolled the streets looking for suspicious characters, partly because the police failed to apprehend Jack the Ripper, and they were like, uh, uh, we "This just is gonna, not okay. We just gonna let this guy be out here killing." So they patrolled the streets and. Um, they were obviously concerned that the murders were affecting business in the area. So they were hoping to deter more murders. And even maybe to find the guy. But I think their main concern it was deterrence. So the committee petitioned the government to raise a reward for information leading to the arrest of the killer and offered their own reward of 50 pounds. Which was a lot then. Yeah now be like fuck you 50 bucks thanks yeah <laughs> um 50 pounds for information leading to the capture of jack the ripper they even hired private detectives to question witnesses independently so they're out here like vigilanteism yeah essentially um authorities also put together a profile or kind of a profile at the end of October 1888, Robert Anderson, who was one of the investigators, asked the police surgeon Thomas Bond to give his opinion on the extent of the murderer's surgical skill and knowledge. Um, it was at that point a lot of people suspected the that Jack the Ripper could have been a doctor or surgeon because of the removal of the organs. Yeah. Um, but Dr. Thomas Bond... Um, when he was talking about the character of the Whitechapel murderer, uh, he, based on his own examination of the victims, he wrote the following, quote, All five murders no doubt were committed by the same hand. In the first four, the throats appear to have been cut from left to right. In the last case, owing to extensive mutilation, it is impossible to say what direction the fatal cut was made, but arterial blood was found on the wall in splashes close to where the woman's head must have been lying. All the circumstances surrounding the murders lead me to form the opinion that the women must have been lying down when murdered, and in every case, the throat was first cut. Very End quote. logical sense. Very logical sense. 
Bond was strongly opposed to the idea that the murderer possessed any kind of scientific or anatomical knowledge, or even the technical knowledge of a butcher or horse slaughterer. That's a specific thing to yeah. get into. Yeah, I don't... A horse slaughterer. Why would you slaughter a horse? Glue. <laughs> that was the that was very disturbing. Horses just don't deserve that. I know. What I had this thought the other day we were watching The Office and Dwight said something about horse meat cuz he is Dwight and I just thought to myself, why is it so taboo in like western society to eat horses, but we will eat Sheep, lamb, obviously. We'll yeah. eat lamb, a baby sheep. Cows, you know, pigs, pigs chickens. chickens. We have ducks, yeah. zero qualms. We don't eat goat. No, we don't eat goat. Goats and horses the are the only no -go. safe farm animals. Yeah, they're the only ones that are safe. They get a pass, but all the other ones are fair game. Why is that? Is it because horses were transportation so they were used to transport you i mean it could be because i mean if you think if people used horses as a food source there was probably no way to like you know run and breed horses for like slaughter and for work and mm -hmm. transportation mm-hmm because we also don't eat, like, donkeys or mules yeah. for the same reason, probably. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Chip, weigh in here. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so horse slaughterers, cool. So, in Thomas Bond's opinion, the killer must have been a man of solitary habits, subject to, quote, periodical attacks of homicidal and erotic mania. With the character of the mutilate the mutilations possibly indicating sat satiriasis satiriasis, I think satiriasis satiriasis, which I looked up is a sort of hypersexuality that they used to diagnose men with. They would diagnose women of hypersexuality with nymphomania, which were a term we're all familiar with, but satiriasis is hypersexuality in men. Uh, so I don't know why those two things have to be so wildly different. Maybe because men start brutally murdering people. Yeah, and women don't. <laughs> huh. It's, all, it's also weird that this is a term we have never heard of. Yeah. And nymphomania is a term that we still hear to this day. Yep. Because it's just, you know... Not necessary to point out that a man is hypersexual, but we have to point out when a woman is. Right. Because it's unacceptable. Yeah. Okay. Before we all get enraged by the patriarchy that we live in, we're going to move on. Um, Bond also stated that the homicidal impulse may have developed from a vengeful or brooding condition of the mind, or... Religious mania may have been the original disease, but 
he didn't think that either hypothesis was likely. Cool. So you just said all of that bullshit for no reason. You just <laughs> throwing it out there. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Thomas. Um, regardless of what Thomas Bond has to say, there was no evidence that the perpetrator actually engaged in sexual activity with any of the victims. Although he did stab all of them in the vagina with a knife and it's, like cut off parts of their genitals. So yeah. it's feeling that very feels sexually motivated. Yeah. yeah. So even if he himself didn't have any sort of sexual contact with the victim, it's still sexually motivated. Yeah. It's giving like, I hate women. It is giving very I hate women and maybe even a little bit of my dick doesn't work. Right. Possible mommy issue. Yeah, we're seeing a culmination of things. So I think it could be all of those. Maybe his mom mistreated him, so he hates women. And also, his dick doesn't work. Too bad that we weren't around in 1888 to give these opinions. Here's the thing. We're going to use our DeLorean, and we're going to go back to 1888, and we're going to say, excuse me, sir, you need to look for a man whose dick will not get hard. (laughs) That is where you will find the Ripper. That man is the one who's killing all these women. (laughs) Case closed. Uh, We have have read too many of these cases. (laughs) Way too many. The the amount, the level that we are desensitized is getting a little worrisome. Um, we might have to take a break from doing this. You know, yeah. Well, at <laughs> least... <laughs> it's it's uh, getting to the point of like, I'm feeling intervention happening at some point. How are we going to intervene on ourselves, though? I'm sure we could come up with a few ways. <laughs> I don't Like, uh... we, can, we can really, like, eat Taco Bell and then talk about this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is what it is. But on the flip side of this... We might be desensitized to hearing this stuff, but we are also hyper aware of the things that are going on in our presence. Right. So, you know, like whenever I'm out and about and someone is just a little too close to me, I'm like, this person wants to fucking murder me. Well, yeah. So then I like make a mental note of all of their facial characteristics. Yeah. I'm like, okay, scar, left eyebrow, got it. <laughs> And then I assess my fingernails. Are they long enough to get some DNA under here? Yes. Check. Got it. First order of business. Scratch the shit out of this person. Right. And then they're like, excuse me, ma'am. You cannot scratch people. (laughs) (sighs) All right. So. Back to it. Back to it. We profiled this guy perfectly. Um, But it might be surprising to hear that there is some forensic evidence in this case. What? What? Including DNA. That we still have to this day. 
Although it is old as fuck <laughs> and has been handled by tons of people. And means really nothing. Means absolutely nothing. Uh, it's so compromised at this point that even if it generated a result, it would kind of be like, but did it? Yeah. You know? But it's still there. Yeah, I mean, what are they going to do? Like, <laughs> arrest this guy's great-great-grandson? Yeah. Sir, you're a descendant of Jack the Ripper, so we're going to need to take you in. Yeah. We're just preventing the next <laughs> Ripper Yeah, extravaganza. Homicidal mania is absolutely genetic, so we're going to... We're going to put the stops to it first. Okay. Suspects. Um, so the concentration of the killings around weekends and public holidays and within a short distance of each other has indicated to many that the Ripper was regularly employed and lived locally, clearly. Um, others think that the killer was an educated upperclassman. And uh, possibly a doctor or an aristoc- aristocrat. I can never say that name, that word. Aris- yeah. Aristocrat? Aristocrat. Yeah, I can't. Because you want to say aristocrats because of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Just call no, an aristocrat. No one's out here saying <laughs> aristocrat all the time. <laughs> Aristocrat. <laughs> <laughs> He was possibly a doctor, like a fucking fancy dude who (laughs) ventured into Whitechapel from time to time um, from a more well-to-do area. Um, Such theories draw on cultural perceptions such as fear of the medical profession, (laughs) Um, a mistrust of modern science, or the exploitation of the poor by the rich. The term... Ripperology <laughs> okay. was coined to describe the study and analysis of the Ripper case in an effort to determine his identity and the murders have inspired numerous works of fiction, obviously. Mm-hmm. Suspects proposed years after the murders include virtually anyone remotely connected to the case. <laughs> By contemporary documents, as well as many famous names um, who were never considered in the police investigation, including a member of the British royal family, an artist, and a physician. Mm. Um, The member of the British royal family who some people thought could be the Ripper for no other reason probably than because... He was a member of the British royal family, was Prince Albert. Poor Albert. Yep. Sorry, dude. Um, here are a few of the suspects listed on jacktheripper.org. <laughs> <laughs> this website is, first of all, amazing. Um, first, we have Montague John Druitt. He lived from 1857 to 1888. Ooh, ooh. He was the favored suspect of Melville McNaughton. And Melville McNaughton was like, we talked about him earlier. He was in the CID and an investigator, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, he worked as a barrister. Mm-hmm. And That's a lawyer. Oh, okay. Yeah. And supplemented his income at the bar by working as an assistant schoolmaster 
at a boarding school in Blackheath, Southeast London. At the end of November in 1888, uh, for reasons that have never been satisfactorily established, he was suddenly dismissed from the school. It's very suspicious. Mm-hmm. November 1888. That was when the Canonical Five murders ended. Right. A month later, on December 31st, 1888, his body was found floating in the Thames at Chis- Chiswick. Yeah. And... Um, It had been in the river for some time. He was a suspect because, for some unknown reason, McNaughton liked him for it. Uh, But also, uh, his family suspected him as well. He committed suicide not long after the last of the canonical five were killed, so many think this is obviously suspicious. Mm -hmm. However, he was never known to have any connection to the area of Whitechapel. Yeah. Uh... I don't know. It it never fully explained why Druitt's family thought that he was the murderer. Yeah. But apparently his whole family was like, yeah, he probably fucking did it. (laughs) Must have been a weird one. (laughs) He must have been a weirdo. But, uh, yeah. I mean, I guess it would fit. One of the witnesses for one of the canonical five murders described, uh, it might have been Annie Chapman talking to a man who was dressed... As, as, as like, a shabby, genteel man. Mm-hmm. That could easily be this guy. Could be. He, his family clearly had enough money for him to have an education. And he had, he was a lawyer, which then was not really, like, he wasn't high society, but he wasn't poor. Right. Now we think of lawyers and doctors as, like, the height of working class working professions, right? white collar, but in this time they weren't because, you know, the height of the social class was the aristocrats who didn't work. (laughs) They just had money. (laughs) Uh, Next is Aaron Kosminski. So Aaron Kosminski is still to this day considered the prime suspect in the Whitechapel murders. He was a resident of Whitechapel had was known to have a substance problem and he was said to have gone insane due to so many years of drug and alcohol abuse so cool he was also said to have a strong hatred for women especially sex workers Mm. ding 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 um one of the senior investigators on the ripper case talked of a witness who unhesitatingly identified kosminski but refused to testify against him Um, Kosminski was eventually committed to an insane asylum in March of 1889 and would be in and out of mental institutions until his death in 1919. Um, So, that's a good one. Yep. He was, I believe, a Polish immigrant. And uh, I think he maybe was a hairdresser. Oh, okay. Well, he would have the fucking Sweeney Todd razor blade shits. Yeah, maybe Sweeney Todd is based on Aaron Kosminski. Could be. Could be. Next up is George Chapman. Um, His real name was Severin Klozowski. And uh, he was a junior surgeon from Poland. 
Over several years, Chapman would marry five women, three of whom died while he was married to them. The family and medical examiner of Chapman's last wife became suspicious and tested her body and eventually exhumed the first two, and they all had significant traces of poison. He was arrested and found guilty of the murders in 1903. So. Whoa. Um... Everyone alive at the time is obviously now long dead, and modern authors are free to accuse anyone, quote, without any need for any supporting historical evidence. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Suspects suspects named in contemporary police documents include three in Sir Melville McNaughton's 1894 memorandum, but the evidence against each of these individuals is at best circumstantial. What's funny about saying that this evidence is at best circumstantial is kind of funny because the case is from 1888. Every single piece of evidence is circumstantial. Right. Pretty much. Yeah. They didn't have shit to test. Yeah. (laughs) So it's all circumstantial. Absolutely. In every case ever. Um, There are many varied theories about the actual identity and profession of old Jack the Ripper, but authorities are not agreed upon any of them, and the number of named suspects reaches over 100. Despite the enduring interest in the Ripper case, he still remains unidentified. How wild. What? (coughs) Okay. Now we're going to talk about the letters, which these letters are very interesting, and it makes me kind of think that a lot of modern serial killers took from Jack the Ripper because, like, Zodiac and BTK both sent letters to the media and the police. I mean, Jack is kind of like the OG. He's the trendsetter for serial killers. Yeah. gross. Um, So the first letter is called the Dear Boss Letter, and it's dated September 25th, 1888, and postmarked September 27th. It was was received that day by the Central News Agency and was forwarded to Scotland Yard on September 29th. Initially, it was considered a hoax, but when Catherine Eddowes was found three days later, after the letter's postmark, with a section of one ear cut, which was a promise from the author of the Dear Boss letter, um, it gained a little bit of authenticity. Uh, yeah, I'd say. So, Ed Al's ear appears to have been nicked by the killer during his attack, and the letter writer's threat to send the ears to the police was never actually carried out. But... The name Jack the Ripper was used in this letter by the signatory and gained worldwide notoriety after its publication. Um, So the Dear Boss letter is the first letter received, and it was apparently signed Jack the Ripper. So even though some say the From Hell letter, which is actually the third letter, some say that's where the name came from, but... Most agree it was the Dear Boss letter. 
And after this letter, most of the other letters that followed copied this tone, with some of the authors adopting pseudonyms like George of the High Rip Gang and Jack Sheridan the Ripper. Some sources claim that another letter dated September 17th was the first to use the name Jack the Ripper, but most believe that it was the Dear Boss letter and that the September 17th one was a fake inserted into police records in the 20th century. Hmm. Next, we have the Saucy Jack postcard. Oh, Saucy Jackie postcard. Yeah. Gross. Oh, no. <laughs> it was postmarked on October 1st, 1888, and was received the same day by the Central News Agency. The handwriting was similar to the Dear Boss letter and mentioned the canonical murders committed on September 30th, which the author refers to by writing, quote, double event this time. It has been argued that the postcard was posted before the murders were publicized, making it unlikely that a crank would hold such knowledge of the crime. However, it was postmarked more than 24 hours after the killings occurred, long after details of the murders were known and published by journalists and had become general community gossip by the residents of Whitechapel. Either way, the handwriting, I think, shows... I think they pretty much believe that the Dear Boss and the Saucy Jackie were written by the same person. Yeah. So the From Hell letter was received by George Lusk, the leader of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, October 16th of 1988. And the handwriting was not similar to the Dear Boss or Saucy Jackie letters. The letter came in a small box in which Lusk also discovered half of a human kidney. Nice. Preserved in spirits of wine, which is essentially ethanol. Edow's left Catherine Edow's left kidney had been removed by the killer, and the writer claimed that he fried and ate the missing kidney half. Ooh, the fuck? <sighs> Gross. There's disagreement over the kidney. Some contend that it belonged to Catherine Edow's, while others argue that it was a macabre practical joke. Hmm. The kidney was examined by Doctor Thomas Oppenshaw of the London Hospital, who determined it was a human kidney and it was from the left side. But contrary to false newspaper reports, he could not determine any other biological characteristics. Obviously, they couldn't say this is Catherine Eddow's kidney like they could today. Right. So, I don't, I don't know. The kidney thing is weird. Obviously. That's very weird. So. Um... There's the Oppenshaw letter. Um, this was the doctor to examine the kidney, uh, you know, that we just talked about. And in the letter received by him, the signature was Jack the Ripper. Yeah. I don't think there's anything too sensational about the Oppenshaw letter. Yeah. So. Um, Scotland Yard published copies of the Dear Boss letter and the Saucy Jackie postcard on October 3rd in hopes that someone in the public would recognize the handwriting and, of course, no one actually came forward. Yep. <clears throat> Very cool. Super cool. Um, but there is some new info out here. 
in a study detailed in a Rolling Stones article that you can find in our sources, um, talks about some physical evidence, namely some seminal fluid found on a shawl belonging to Catherine Eddowes, that was tested by Dr. David Miller of the University of Leeds Medical School. So according to the results from the test by Dr. David Miller, the DNA from the seminal fluid could be a close match to a currently living relative of none other than Aaron Kosminski. What? Yep. Um, so, some take issue with the analysis, saying that there's no evidence that the Shaw was actually at the crime scene, and that mitochondrial DNA is inconclusive evidence. Others say that the material the Shaw was made of was likely too fine for a sex worker like Catherine Eddowes to own at that time, um, although it was found that the fabric was made in Russia. And it was possible that Kosminski, who was Polish, and at the time, Polish was occupied, Poland was occupied by Russia. Uh, so Kosminski could have gotten the Shah for himself and left it at the scene. Could have. Um, but either way, who knows? Like we've said before, the DNA that was kept with this case has obviously been contaminated and compromised beyond belief, but I guess it's a close match for a Kosminski relative I guess. descendant, so Could be? Could be. Maybe it was Aaron Kosminski. Maybe we'll all see the day that the Jack the Ripper cases are solved. Yeah. Maybe. Some people might just have taken this, like, DNA thing and been like, you know what? That's enough for me. Yeah. I mean, fair. Yeah. So, that's it. Um, I don't know. I'm compelled by the DNA. Well, yeah, DNA is pretty compelling. <laughs> but, uh... Yeah. Also, he kind of fits the profile. A little bit. You know, he hated women. He especially had a hatred for sex workers. That's pretty telling. Yeah. So. That's it. Case closed. Yep. We're glad you all came. <laughs> yeah. We're glad you were here so that we could talk through the fact that Jack the Ripper is solved. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, the brutality of these crimes, there had to be a level of hatred on the part of the murderer. Absolutely. Because that level of overkill is just not seen unless they had a hatred for that type of victim. Right. And that's obvious. Absolutely. So. That's Jack the Ripper, you guys. Yep. So. Um, it was a lot more brutal than I thought it was going to be when we picked it. Yeah, I mean, everyone knows that Jack the Ripper was, like, you know, a super fucked up thing, but people, you kind of almost think of it as, like, a fun, spooky yeah. mystery, you know? Yeah, whenever, before re reading all of it, my idea of Jack the Ripper was very, like, noir, kind of, like, 19th century England, Yeah, you know, dirty back alleys but not 
disembowelment triangles cut under eyes. No. Yeah. No. Mutilation did not come into my thoughts of Jack the Ripper. Yeah, you just think straight serial murders. Yeah, just, did they just kill him and leave him and go on. Yeah. Yeah, I almost always kind of thought of, like, you know, obviously at night, dude, like, in full black, just literally just, like, sneak killing people and then, like, running off. Yeah. That's... Yeah, that's kind of what I thought, too. Yeah. Yeah, it not... Nothing, like, super brutal. Yeah. And for whatever reason, it probably was the time period that this happened that made me think that. Yeah. Like, eh, people in 1880 didn't just fucking kill... Cut, chop people up in the streets. Right. But apparently, they he did. did. So. Old Jack did. Ugh. Gross. You know, when we first got Artie, we wanted to name him Jack. Well, he could still. No, he's an Artie. Let's call him Ripper. Come here, Ripper. <laughs> nah. Yep. I really, I wanted to name him Jack, but Dakota's brother was like, uh, when we have our first kid, if it's a boy, we want to name it Jack. Mm. And I said, okay. Even though... They weren't pregnant at the time, and I was like, you can really only claim a name if you're pregnant, but I, you know. We'll give this one to you. Yeah. We'll let you have Jack, and we'll go with Arthur, which turns out is much better, because he's an arty. Yeah. You know? I only know one Jack, and it's my Uncle Jack, Mm. and, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, arty. He's just, he's such an arty. And I picked Arthur because I wanted to name him after a Harry Potter character. But I couldn't be too obvious with it because Dakota had to also be on board. Right. So instead of going with, like, you know, Albus, right, uh, I picked Arthur because that's very normal. Right. And Artie's really cute. And then it stuck. And I was like, ha we now have a dog named after a Harry Potter character and you didn't even know. <laughs> so, yeah, there's that. Um, so, thanks, thanks, thanks to Ariel and Laura for our music and our artwork, respectively. Mm-hmm. Um, they're awesome. And our shit looks great and sounds great and... They get to take all the credit because we literally didn't do anything for those things. <laughs> um, please subscribe to our show. Please. Share the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, rate us five stars on Apple and Spotify, if you please. Yeah. And uh, visit our socials and send us a message. It'd be greatly appreciated. That's all. I just received notification that a package was delivered, and I think it is a piece of our merch that I ordered, so we're going to go open that package together. And I'll put a photo of it on our Instagram. Hell yeah. So, um, yeah, we're going to go look at our presents, and in the meantime, we need all of you to be kind and stay weird. Okay, goodbye.